Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Sam Explaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host, I'll be Sam Explaining the Science, and today we're talking about clinical trials. Let's get into it. Hey everyone, how are ya? I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having a good week. My week has been pretty good, no complaints, but also nothing really exciting to update on or report. Um, yeah, same old. Pretty boring. I actually walked. This is something that I did that I can seem interesting about. I uh, Last Saturday, I did the Broad City Walk from the tippity top to the tippity bottom of Manhattan. And I got to tell you, I was not prepared for that. I was not prepared to walk that much. I was in a lot of pain on Sunday and Monday, but it was cool. It was, you know, a nice, uh, nice way to see the city in a way that I've never seen it before. And, um, yeah, I would recommend if you're, you know, someone who doesn't mind walking 20 miles, I think my final tally was like 20 miles. Um, and it was the day before the New York city marathon. So when I was walking through central park, I saw, the finish line to the marathon, which is pretty cool. Um, and then on TikTok, because I'm on TikTok, I'm chronically on TikTok, I saw so many TikToks of people that were like finishing the marathon, and it was so emotional. I didn't know any of them, but I was so proud of them. So if you ran the New York City Marathon, shout out. I'm, I don't know you, but I'm so proud of you. And uh, I'm going to go next year. I'm going to go and like not run. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to stand on the side and drink White Claws all day and, like, cheer on strangers. That's what I'm going to do. When I say I'm going to the New York City Marathon, that's what I meant. Not, no. It took me two days to recover from walking 20 miles. Could you imagine? Not happening. Anyway, so that was my weekend. And then the week has been just pretty standard, you know, work, sleep, repeat, Nothing too exciting, but um, yeah, so for today's episode, like I said, we're going to talk about clinical trials. Um, this is one of the options on my Instagram poll that I put up a couple weeks ago, and it was the second place one, so uh, we're going to talk about clinical trials and sort of like the different phases of them, how they work, stuff like that. So let's get into the questions for today. The first question is, what is a clinical trial? We're going to talk about the basics of clinical trials and the different types of clinical trials and um, just some important uh, terminology and little, uh, I guess, factoids about clinical trials. And then the second question, I'm going to walk through the phases of the clinical trials because, I don't know, I hear a lot about like, oh, this was in phase two clinical trials. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? I feel like for people who aren't in clinical research, that means nothing, you know? So I kind of wanted to outline what each phase of the clinical trial means. Um, so that hopefully when we hear about things that are in, you know, phase two or phase three, we'll, we'll have a better idea of what they are. Cool. So let's get into it. Question one, what is a clinical trial? I wanted to walk through the basics first. 
So clinical trials are medical research experiments. Um, The point of them or the aim of a clinical trial is to look at or like study the safety and the effectiveness of a new intervention, whether that intervention is a new treatment or drug, whether it's a new vaccine or ways to prevent illness, um, whether it's new medical devices or new surgical techniques, these all require clinical trials um, before being pushed out to the general public. And that's because we need to prove that these new investments or these new interventions are effective and safe for people before we let anybody access them. So clinical trials are a type of clinical research. Clinical research is divided into two sort of classifications. The first one is an observational study, and then the next is the clinical trial. So observational studies don't really assign interventions as clinical trials do. They're more just like observing. (laughs) They're observing like people's behavior and like health trends in like the general population. Um, Whereas clinical trials recruit participants for uh, testing and intervention. So that's sort of the difference between clinical trial and observational studies. But we're going to talk about clinical trials. Um, Clinical trials are conducted by research teams that are led by a PI or a principal investigator. That PI, that person acts as the team lead, but the research team um, actually does the science. Um, That's a throwback to one of my earlier episodes about science being a verb. So the research team are the people who actually recruit the participants, they collect the data, they analyze the data, and then they write reports, usually annually, sometimes more frequently than annually, but they write reports with updates to the study, um, sort of just like check-ins, and including interim data analysis. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about RSV, excuse me, we talked about RSV and one of the questions that we had was talking about RSV vaccines and I talked about um, like updates and interim data analysis from clinical trials. So those were just annual reports that were put out by those respective pharmaceutical companies um, that kind of give an update to the government, update to the people, I guess, about how their new intervention is performing. And those were for vaccines um, in that context, but they also do the same thing for new drugs or new medical devices and so on. Um, so the research team are the people who are actually doing the science, but the science cannot be done without volunteers. Um, So clinical trials are only possible because of volunteers. Those are patients or controls or and controls. Um, And depending on the type of trial, it could be a mixture of both. Anyone can participate in clinical trials. And those are the people who sign up, they volunteer to participate in the study, right? And whatever the study entails, whether it's Um, blood markers, they have to give blood samples or imaging, they have to get MRIs or, you know, behavioral studies could even just be like surveys. Um, And maybe it's a combination of those, all of those things. 
Um, but the volunteers are the actu- actually the people who participate in the study so that the research team has something to analyze. And then, of course, there are sponsors. So clinical trials are sponsored by uh, institutions, companies, government agencies. Those are people who truck. My windows are open. I'm a, I'm a windows open girl until like the dead of winter. And even sometimes in the dead of winter, I'll leave the windows open because it gets a little hot with the heat on. I'm all, my windows are always open. I just like the fresh air. So sue me. Anyway, what was I saying? Um, Sponsors, companies, industry, institutions, government agencies, they're the ones who provide the funding so that the research can be done, right? Because in a clinical trial, um, you know, if a participant has to get blood drawn and get an MRI, for example, the processing of the blood through different assays to measure antibodies, for example, that costs money. Um, And if you're going to do it before and after an intervention, that costs double the money. Um, MRIs or like different imaging techniques cost money. So clinical trials are very expensive um, because we'll talk about this later, but thousands of people need to be participating in clinical trials in order to get enough data to say whether this new intervention is like worth it or not. Um, so that's a lot of people. And then each person, each participant has multiple requirements for the study and, you know, whether it's blood draws and blood assays, imaging, um, you know, even like their time, that's a pretty big investment. So clinical trials need sponsors, usually companies or government agencies to, um, pay for that because money makes the world go round, right? The next question that I wanted to talk about was, or this is the same question, what is a clinical trial? But a sub-question is like, what are the different types of the clinical trials? Because there are different types. There, Like I mentioned, we're testing for vaccines or drugs or surgical interventions or medical devices. So all of these different things that we're testing for, these new interventions, need different types of clinical trials. So the first one is a prevention trial. We could think of this as like the vaccine trial, right? We're preventing or we're trying to investigate if we can prevent disease in people who've never had the disease or prevent the disease from recurring. Um, So those are the prevention trials, which are, I think, in my very limited scope, admittedly, of clinical trials, really seems just like vaccine trials. The second is screening trials. This is when they try to find new ways to um, screen for or test for different diseases um, or health conditions. Kind of in the same vein are diagnostic trials. Um, I'm not, it's not really clear to me what the difference is exactly, but diagnostic trials, again, they're like comparing tests for diagnosing a particular disease or condition. So I think the difference is like, I think screening is more like testing in a large group to like see the incidence in a population, whereas diagnostic is like comparing one test versus another, right? So it's like if we want to get a new um, new way to test for strep throat, right? We have the ways that work 
already that are already approved, but we have a new way that might be faster or more accurate or more effective. That would be a diagnostic trial because you're comparing different ways to diagnose a particular disease or condition, whereas screening is more like trying to test in a general way, test for health conditions, test for diseases. That was my interpretation of it, and I could very well be wrong. If you know, let me know. If you know, let me know. We'll help each other out. The next is treatment trials. So these ones are the trials that look at new types of treatment, right? New drugs or therapies or surgical interventions. And they're basically just aiming to find new ways to treat medical conditions. So next is a behavior trial. And behavior trials are more looking at ways to change behavior to improve health. So the intervention in this case is not going to be a vaccine or a drug. It's going to be more about changing behavior. Um, so maybe a clinical trial investigating, you know, it, it, in incorporating 30 minutes of walking a day. And does that have, does that help people who have a certain heart condition, right? Or um, maybe the behavior is like, writing in a journal for 30 minutes a day? Does that help people who have, um, you know, mental illness, depression, anxiety, um, things like that? It's not so much the intervention is not behavior, or sorry, the intervention is not focused on like a pharmaceutical or a surgery or a medical device. It's more about your behavior um, that they're looking at to see how that changes your health. Um, the last one, is the quality of life trial. Um, these are also known as supportive care trials, and these look at ways that improve the comfort um, and the, the quality of life with people who have terminal uh, or chronic conditions and illnesses. Okay, this I should have mentioned earlier, but you probably already know this. If you've listened to the show at least once, you know. Um, the sources for all this information are in the episode description. So if you're curious and you want to look at it, you can check it out. Um, mainly just clinicaltrials.gov, uh, which has tons of information. Okay. The last part of the first question that I wanted to talk about was important terminology or just like terms that are used in the world of clinical trials. Um, so it's kind of going to be like a rapid fire of just like random words, but I'll explain them, of course, as I go along. So the first is placebo. You might have heard this. This is, I think, a pretty common term that most people are familiar with. But the idea of a placebo is that um, some participants in a clinical trial are given something that is inactive, right? So if we're testing a vaccine, um, there's a group of people in the trial who will just get a inactive saline injection of salt water, basically. Instead of getting an injection that has the vaccine in it, it'll just be an injection with nothing that will really perturb their system. Um, if it's for a treatment, like a drug, 
Um, instead of getting a drug with a pharmacological agent in it, it'll just be like a sugar pill, right? And the reason why that they use placebos is that you can compare the effects of an active drug to an inactive drug. And then we can know that it's the actual components, like the pharmacological agents in the drug, that are making an effect if we see one. And it's not just the act of taking a pill or getting a shot that gives the effect of the drug. So it's basically like a control condition um, where they're going through the motions of getting the treatment or like getting the, um, the vaccine or whatever, but um, they're not actually getting the pharmacological uh, agent that we're testing for. And then we can compare and say like, okay, well, the people who were on the placebo, their disease didn't change at all. Um, whereas the people who were not on the placebo, who were on the active drug, got a lot better. And then we can say like, okay, so it's not the act of taking a pill that makes you feel better. It's the actual components of the active pill that are making them better. So it's more of like a, for an experimental design, or in a, in a an experimental design point of view, that's why the placebo is so beneficial. Um, the next term that's kind of common in uh, clinical trials is blinded. So this is in regards to the status of the groups of participants, right? There's one group of participants, like I just alluded to, that gets the drug, right? That's the experiment group. And then there's another group of participants who gets the placebo or the control group. And in a single-blinded study, this means that the participants, the people who are in those groups who are participating in the trial, they are blinded or like kept in the dark about whether they're receiving the test drug or the placebo dur during the entire data collection process, right? So they'll be given a pill and they'll say, you have to take this once a day or twice a day, whatever. And they don't know whether this pill is pharmacologically active, whether there's like some chemicals in it that'll make you feel better or whatever, or if it's just a sugar pill. The participants don't know that. Um, and then the double-blinded study means that neither the participant nor the researchers are aware of the group conditions during data collection. So there's like one person who knows and who organizes and makes sure that there's enough people in the placebo and enough people in the experimental group, but the researchers who are analyzing the data don't know which group is which, right? They don't know whether this group is getting the placebo or getting an active drug. They know that there are two different groups, so they can analyze the data as two different groups, but they don't know which group is rich. And oftentimes, actually, if we're thinking about like drugs, they'll test different um, doses of the drug. So there could be more than just two groups, and in, in that case, they're blinded to all different conditions, whether it's you know a placebo, low dose, high dose. They don't know who, what anybody's getting. And that's sort of ideal in most cases because then there's no, um, I could speak as a scientist here, you want your data to look good, right? You want your, your science to succeed, right? 
So if you see that, like, oh, my placebo is acting the same as my, um, my experiment group, you might be like, oh, well, maybe I'll just, you know, bump this up a little bit or, like, play with the data too much. Um, and that's not good, right? So the idea of a double-blind study is actually preferred, I think, because it's like, well, if you don't know as the participant, you can't change anything. And if I don't know as the researcher, I can't change anything. So the final data results that we get are going to be like, I, I mean, ideally, if you're an honest person, they're going to be like untouched, right? They're going to be real, true results, ideally. Whether those are positive findings and saying like, oh my God, this drug is so effective, or they're negative findings and saying this drug doesn't work any better than the placebo did. Regardless, if I'm blinded and you're blinded, neither one of us can tweak the data in any way to tell a better story. So I, I kind of like the idea of blinded, uh, um, blinded experiments. Um, plus, who doesn't like a surprise at the end? You're like, surprise, the, you know, the drug worked or the vaccine works, and it's like, you know. Who doesn't like a surprise? Anyway, another term that's commonly used in clinical trials is randomization. And that's basically when you're randomly assigning participants to groups, right? So I'm going to stick with the, the drug analogy, um, where we'll have three groups, a placebo group, a low-dose group, and a high-dose group. And as people join the study, as they're recruited, um, we'll just randomly assign them to each group. And there are some things to consider as well. Um, like when you're, when you're forming groups, ideally you don't want to have too much difference across the groups. Like we don't want to have, you know, everyone in the placebo group be in their 30s and then everyone in the, the drug group be in their 70s, right? Because then the effects that we're seeing might not be from the drug, it might be from age. So you want to have it sort of spread out across age, for example, um, another that's called age matched. Another is um, matched across sexes, right? So you don't want to have all males in the control group and all females in the, the drug group and then draw decisions from the data thinking that it's because of the drug when actually it could be due to hormones or, you know, whatever, any difference between the sexes. So age matched and sex matched typically are other like terms that you'll hear, but they have to keep that in mind when they're randomly assigning um, participants to groups during randomization. Okay. But before people can volunteer to participate in a clinical trial, they have to provide informed consent. Um, consent is key for many things, and science is no different. The process of informed consent starts with, um, well, I guess maybe I should say before this, that people find out about clinical trials through a bunch of different avenues, right? You can actually go, if you're interested in participating in a clinical trial, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and search by, like, condition. You can search by location, and see like what sort of studies are going on that are near you or relevant to you or anything like that. Um, so it's like public information that you can search if you're interested. 
But also a lot of times people find out about clinical trials through their doctors. So like if a person has like a regular specialist that they go to for a certain medical condition, um, ideally if they're a good doctor, they'll be up on like the science and, you know, all the studies that are going on and the developments in the field. Um, so a doctor could say to their patient like, oh, hey, there's this clinical trial going on. It's relevant to, you know, this condition. You should think if you're interested and then they'll like set it up that way, that connection. But anyway, regardless of how somebody finds out about a clinical trial, they contact the research team, say, hey, I'm interested. And then the research team might ask them a few questions that are like relevant to the study. Um, so like, for example, if they're testing for um, a certain drug, they might say like, oh, well, like, do you take any other drugs? And maybe there are drugs that are interact with, maybe there are drugs Maybe there are other drugs that interact with the drug that they're studying, and if you're taking that other drug, you can't participate in the study, that sort of thing. But once you pass this, like, mini pop quiz of, like, can you participate in the study, the next important step before actually getting recruited to the study and actually participating in the research, whether it's giving a blood sample or getting an image or whatever, is um, uh, informed consent. <laughs> I just said it. Um, so during informed consent, the research team sits down with the potential participant and um, the researcher explains the experiment and describes what the experiment will entail for the participant, right? What do you have to do in order to participate in this trial? Well, we need to take blood samples before the drug, one week after the drug, two week after the drug, et cetera. Like, billing out how many times they're going to have to come in for a blood sample, how many times they're going to have to come in for imaging, um, how many times they're going to have to take surveys, whether that be in person or over the phone. And, you know, what are, you what are we measuring? When we take the blood sample, what are we looking at? And, and explain to them the science that we're doing so that they understand what the trial entails. Um, so the, the, in addition to that, what you would do during the study, the researcher also explains the potential risks and benefits of participating in the study. And then after they have all that information, so like what they need to do if they're a part of the study, any potential risks and any potential benefits, then the person can decide whether to give informed consent or not. Um, and if they decide, like even with these potential risks, um, I think the benefits are worth it and like it's not too much of a time commitment or like whatever. They'll decide, yes, I want to participate in the study and they'll sign off on a form and that will be their informed consent. But it's important to note, as is with any scientific study, it doesn't have to be a clinical trial, it could be any study, participation is completely voluntary. Um, so I could sign up for a clinical trial and they'll say, oh, it's five visits of you know, coming in, doing assessments, getting blood drawn, et cetera. If I decide by the third assessment or the, th the third visit, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't have to. Like You can choose to stop participating at any time. You are not held against your will. If you sign up and change your mind, if you give informed consent and then change your mind, you're absolutely allowed to do that. That's like one of the ethics things that we can actually talk about in a little bit. But, like, you as the participant have all of the power 
to decide when you want to stop, if you want to stop, or if you want to continue with the study. Um, you know what? That could be a good idea for a future episode of like why all of the ethics, history of science ethics. Because you probably learned about this in like, if you took like Psych 101, you, you might have learned about it, but I don't know. I think it's interesting. So that'll be a future episode. Anyway, I love when I come up with ideas when I'm not even trying to. It, that, that is always the case. When I'm like, okay, I'm going to brainstorm. There's nothing going on up here when I'm brainstorming. But it's always like when I'm thinking about something else that I'm like, oh, we could do that. Anyway, okay. So that's informed consent. The next term that I wanted to talk about is protocol. Maybe I should have talked about protocol first before the informed consent because the protocol is what the participant is informed of during informed consent. It's basically writing out exactly how the research is done, right? How will the participants be recruited? Where, where will they be recruited from? Um, how will they be assigned into experimental groups, right? Are they gonna be matched for age, matched for sex, randomized? Is it gonna be a single blind study, a double blind study? You know, what are you gonna measure during the study? What are you gonna, what is the intervention? Describe the intervention and what it's gonna do. And then talk about how, what are you gonna measure before and after the intervention to tell us that it works, to tell us that it's safe. Um, and then once you gather all the data, how are you gonna analyze this data to prove that it's safe, to prove that it works? How are you gonna draw your conclusions? All of these questions are written up into the protocol. And the protocol is written before the study even begins, right? Um, so before you even start doing research, before you start recruiting participants, you know what you wanna do. Um, it's always good to plan, obviously. But the real reason why it's done before the study is because before the study begins, it has to be, a, the protocol itself has to be approved by the IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board, IRB. So the IRB is a panel of independent experts on ethics. So the IRB is not a part of the group that's organizing the study, right? They're not sponsors, they're not the research team, they're not the PI. They're completely independent. And the only thing that the IRB cares about is ethics. They focus on the safety and the rights of the research participants. So they don't really care about the researchers. Um, and coming from a researcher, trust me, the IRB will not make anything easy for us, ever. Um, but it's important that they don't make anything easy for the scientists, right? Because they are there in order to make sure that the participants are safe and that the participants have, you know, ample benefits to minimal risk ratios. Um, so the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, reads through this protocol that the research team builds all about the study before the study begins and they make sure that there's, un, there's no unnecessary risk to the participant. Um, and they make sure that the risks that are there that might be necessary are minimal compared to the potential benefits of the study. And then once the IRB deems this protocol appropriate and saying, okay, like this is safe for participants, it's not unethical, it's, it's all good, 
then the study is approved, and then the science can begin, and then they can start recruiting subjects and stuff. So that's the IRB. I think those were the main buzzwords, important terminology that I saw on the website. Um, but if there's any others that you're like, what does this mean? Let me know, and I'll, I'll uh, get back to you on it. All right, the next question, uh, question two of this episode was asking about phases of clinical trials. Um, this is because, like I said earlier, but like you hear, oh, that drug failed in phase two. And you're like, well, what does phase two mean? Like what, what, is, what is the purpose of phase two and what is it? So um, that's the, hopefully by the end of this question, we'll have an idea of what the different phases are. Okay. So the first phase I wrote is phase zero, technically not a clinical trial phase. And I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. If you're a clinical trial expert, you're like, nah, shh, because it's important. It's very important because phase zero, the thing that I made up in my head, is all the work that goes into the thing, right? It's the development of it, the building of it the development of this medical device and then, or, you know, the development, the chemical development of this drug or this vaccine and then testing it in a dish, right? In a, in a Petri dish, testing it in mice or rats and making sure that it's safe and effective in preclinical populations first, a preclinical meaning like small animals and like in vitro, meaning in a dish. If they put this drug or whatever in a glob of cells on a dish and all the cells die, they're going to be like, mm, let's not put this in a mouse, you know? And then if they, they, it doesn't kill all the cells, they're like, okay, let's put it in a mouse or a rat. And then they'll put it in the rat or the mouse, the animal. And then they'll say like, oh, like this dose is making the mouse kind of loopy. Like maybe we should lower the dose. Or, you know, maybe they'll test in the mouse and say, like, oh, well, this improved the blood measures in the mouse by X amount, but we needed to be double that. So let's increase the dose. You know, all of the testing that's done preclinically is very important in order to get to phase one, phase two, phase three, okay? So I put phase zero. Clinicaltrials.gov did not have phase zero, and it makes sense because it's not clinical, right? Clinical meaning, like, in people, in the clinic. This is preclinical trials, phase zero, but they're still very important, so I wanted to shout them out. Okay, but now into phase one, the actual clinical trial part. Now we're actually in people, okay? Um, phase one usually has a small sample size of about 20 to 80 people. And with phase one, the main goal of phase one is to determine that the intervention, whether it be a drug or vaccine or whatever, is safe, um, meaning that the side effects are not dire, right? And they start with a small sample size because if they notice that, you know, I'm going to give this vaccine to 20 people and 18 of the 20 people grow a tail, they're going to say, let's, let's cut it, let's stop. And that's, that would fail in phase one clinical trial. Um, you know, anything obvious, like obvious side effects that could be detrimental to large populations of people, that's where they cut it. 
in phase one. But ideally, people don't grow tails after a vaccine or after a drug or anything. So then if they notice, okay, in this, you know, 50 group of 50 people, there were no major side effects. That's the green light to move forward to phase two. Phase two is a bit of a larger sample size. It's around 100 to 300 people. And phase two is where they start looking at effectiveness. They continue to look at safety and make sure that nobody has any like crazy side effects, make sure nobody grows any tails. But they're also starting to look at effectiveness because now they have a larger sample where they can say, okay, now they can include like control versus test or experiment, right? And they can look at the effectiveness of the drug in treating an illness, or they can look at the effectiveness of a vaccine against preventing against illness. Um, with a larger sample size, you can catch trends in data. Um, I think we talked about that in our stats episode. Let's talk about stats, baby. Um, so it's a, bit, a little bit of a larger sample size than phase one. So we start to look at effectiveness. And if it passes all the green lights and there's, again, no safety concerns and there's preliminary checkpoints to say, okay, from the initial data, it looks like it's kind of effective or at least kind of effective. Then it gets the green light to move on to phase three. Phase three is an even larger sample. Phase three trials are um, 10 times the size of phase two trials. So the, the uh, sample size is between 1,000 to 3,000 people. And again, they're continuing to look at side effects. They're continuing to look at effectiveness in a larger sample. And it's from these results that the Food and Drug Administration or like other approval boards across the world um, can approve or not approve of the intervention and say whether the benefits outweigh the risks. If so, then they'll approve this intervention. If not, then it will fail in phase three. So that's phase three. That's like the main one, right? That's like after phase three, if it passes phase three, it's approved and it's like free for the world. Well, not free. That's another story for another day. But um, yeah, after phase three, it's available. If, if I should say after a successful phase three, then it's available. Um, it should be available to people. Um, and then the last one is phase four. And this one is after FDA approval or after like board approval, World Health Organization approval. They're going to continue tracking the safety and the effectiveness in the general population. Um, so it's ongoing. They're always monitoring to make sure that nobody grows a tail, you know, long term. Um, and that part of the, that phase, I guess, of the clinical trial is also used to um, make sure that the intervention is going to be used optimally. Um, because if, you know, we're getting, think about like the COVID-19 vaccines, right? We know the mechanisms that we're not going to grow tails, you know, like the mechanism of the vaccine is pretty fast. In a couple of days, the vaccine is out of your system and then you're just left with immunity, long lasting immunity, which we would have against, you know, any other infection. Um, but 
we can determine optimal use and like how often should we get a booster, right? Do we need boosters at all? And those questions can be answered with our phase four data of like ongoing collection, right? In the general population. Oh, well, people who get a bivalent booster, bivalently boosted episode. I'm doing a lot of episode shout outs today. Look at me tooting my own horn. Anyway, um, they could say like with this phase four information, oh, well, people who get boosted have lower disease incidence, you know, and they can, they can continue collecting this data in population trends, right? So at this point, it's not like we need to give informed consent. At this point, because there's no like personal information that they're getting other than like, are you vaccinated and like, are you getting sick? Um, and they can do that based off of like, they don't have to know you in particular, your condition, right? They can know like, okay, well, 70% of the population is vaccinated and X amount of the population is getting sick. You know, what is the connection between those? What is the correlation between those? And they can do that analysis ongoing so that they can determine the optimal use for the intervention. I'm rambling. I rambled a lot today. Sorry, I'm not. That's why, that's why this is here. That's why I'm doing this, to, to ramble, to talk about science. So, okay. All right, let's get into some takeaways for today's episode. I guess the main takeaways that I have are clinical trials are so important. So many things are available to us for use to benefit our health because of clinical trials, right? Um, to, to either prevent or treat conditions or ailments or anything. Um, so I'm very grateful for clinical trials because without them, I wouldn't have allergy medicine. I wouldn't have oh man, my vaccines. I wouldn't have Advil. I wouldn't have, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have access to things that could help my health. So thank you, clinical trials. Also, they're so cool. And I love, this is the second takeaway point. I love that you can, like I could participate in a clinical trial. I mean, I haven't, but I could if I wanted to. Actually, I wonder if I can. I feel like I must be able to. My research, I work in Alzheimer's disease, so and I'm 30. So obviously, well, I'm not 30 yet. I'm almost. Um, so I don't think I can be part of an Alzheimer's trial. But maybe I could be a part of, like, a different trial. I don't know. Maybe I'll look into that. I feel like they wouldn't let me in an Alzheimer's trial if I worked in Alzheimer's, right? That's probably, like, mixing. That's not good. you got to keep it separate. But maybe I could be in, like, a, I don't know just a control for a different trial, vaccine trial. I would do it. I should do it. I should look into it. Anyway, if you're interested, you can look into it too. There's more information on clinicaltrials.gov. I have a little screen grab here if you're watching the video of their beta website. I went on their clinicaltrials.gov, like the original one, and I was like, wow, this looks really archaic. And then there was a little like bubble on the top that was like, try our beta version. And I clicked it and I'm like, this looks like it's from this century. So the link is also the beta version because the old one is antiquated. 
anyway, I put a screen grab here of the like search engine. So you can like search by location, you can search by condition, other like key terms if you're interested, and then you can just search and it'll tell you, it'll give you a list of all the clinical trials that fulfill those conditions. Um, so pretty interesting. If you're interested, check it out. If not, that's totally cool too. Um, but hopefully you're still, even if you're not interested in participating, you can still appreciate that clinical trials uh, give us a lot. All right. That's all for this week's episode. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. And you can subscribe on YouTube, please. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at SamSplainingSci. So connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam explain to you, ask away. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.